Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Geekening Podcast. I am your occasional host, Will, and today we have a very special guest. Please introduce yourself. Hello, I am J.V. Hilliard, and I am an author of epic and dark fantasy. So if you like uh, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or play Dungeons and Dragons, you will likely like The Last Keeper, which is book one in the Warminster Saga. Okay. Cool, cool. Uh, not gonna lie to you, first time I've ever heard of this series, but I'm interested because I am into Lord of the Rings and D&D. Yes, so the uh, the idea uh, for the novels have come from uh, almost a lifetime of playing Dungeons and Dragons. I uh, started playing when I was 10 and wow. um, I fell in love with the game right around the same time I was uh, introduced to The Hobbit by my fourth grade English teacher. Uh, he had, he was a substitute teacher who had come in the end of the year. My uh, full-time teacher had left for a medical sabbatical mm. and uh, he came in and he was given permission to read us the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. So we literally spent a month every day, an hour a day in his class uh, and he would read through the books and I fell in love with the genre and asked for a Dungeons and Dragons game that Christmas and I, and I got it. I started playing with friends and family and, and then that evolved over time where, you know, I was playing with the same group of friends that we still played uh, every Sunday, uh, six to 10 and we're all over the country now. We Skype in and some of us get together in person. And, uh, you know, the book is a bit of a memorialization of the adventures that we've had uh, over the years of Dungeons and Dragons uh, with of course, a uh, unique spin on it. And, you know, I borrow uh, inspiration from the masters like Tolkien and, yeah. uh, and and others, but you know, ultimately it's my realm, uh, it's my magic system, it's my creatures. Um, and uh, of course it reflects some of our old characters that we uh, came to, to love during years of, of playing the game. So that's really what's behind it. Uh, and uh, if you like tabletop role-playing or uh, you're into that kind of genre. I think you'll you'll find the Last Keeper a book for you. That is awesome because uh, me and my friends every Friday we actually get together and play, and we've been doing it for about almost three years now. And it's the same campaign, same characters. No one's died yet, surprisingly. <laughs> Uh, especially since it's um, set in the world of Pharos, which is very based off of Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And going in, you're like, oh, you know, it'll be epic. Hydra, Cyclops, Pegasi. And then you realize, oh, wait, we're the main characters in a Greek epic. Rarely does it go well for them. Yeah, never does it go well. <laughs> but it seems like it's been going okay for you guys. You've been surviving through it, right? Not saying by how much. Um, <laughs> for some things, yeah, they have been divine intervention, of course, because you know, the gods have to get their hands in. And yeah. then it's a Greek epic. Yeah. But you know, uh, especially in that genre, I think you're you'll find that the gods have a tendency to play more with humans. And and I, I, and same thing with Warminster. I, I've created a Hall of the Ancients, which is my sort of uh version of the heavens uh so instead of mount olympus or or uh valhalla it's the hall of the ancients and my gods and goddesses are called ancients uh and they some of them more than others interfere with the lives of of the uh the the mortals that are in the realm of warminster uh to the 
to the point where one of them is cursed very similarly to what you will you'll find in greek and roman mythology uh he was cursed by, by his own ancient uh for what i would describe as kind of uh you know the you know stepping over the line of the first commandment in their, in their sect uh, uh and as a result he and is catapulted with this curse into this um you know this long drawn out battle with the the protagonist uh, a young prophet that he comes uh, uh in touch with and it's he the great taurus who is the cursed and and damus who is um you know kind of the last keeper they come together to face off uh when what i hope is uh, the beginning of an epic series i find that kind of funny uh for one reason and one reason only okay and that's for the theros game which you can uh, listen to on all ages of geeks website uh, okay dice um i play a character named tauros very <laughs> a uh, minotaur cleric of uh farika who is the god of like disease sickness affliction but also medicine well what and, you'll like about this is gray taurus who is the villain uh is afflicted uh <laughs> and he uh his god has taken he was a former prophet a seer of his religion which was a religion of knowledge and because he used a tome of enlightenment which was their most holy artifact the, uh, for a personal gain uh his ancient stole not only his physical sight but his his metaphysical sight so he could no longer see and the only thing that he can see is the coming of his rival this damus alaric uh and so it it's strange as that is i'm sure the spellings might be a little different right uh, the character is such you know uh you know hey you know fellow geeks you know they we think alike right yeah so great minds we, think alike exactly so they worked out fine yeah though i will say one difference i hope is um taurus's intelligence because taurus has a whopping intelligence of five he's yeah. not bright at all but he does the right thing <laughs> yeah no great taurus is an intelligent guy he's sublimely clever and he devises a a plan to get back at his rival who doesn't even know that he's his rival no. uh, and there's reasons for that that'll come out later in the series and i don't want to give any kind right. of spoilers to that effect but you know ultimately you know damus the the young keeper of this forbidden knowledge that doesn't even know why great taurus is coming after him uh and it's one of those things that he he sees coming through his own divine intervention this uh, he has a, a power of honoramancy this that he he sees visions of what is yet to come when he sleeps very similar to like modern day edgar casey uh in that respect and and uh you know for for him he has visions of this fallen keeper coming closer and closer and closer to him at, at night until they finally in their own dreamscapes meet one another and that's how the book starts right and and damus can't figure out why this guy is after him he has no idea uh but his this ancient his god is showing him that this is about to happen and he has to interpret his sight to to find out kind of solve the riddle of great taurus the mad so um yeah interesting corollaries by accident i'd like that. yeah i think that's pretty good yeah yeah though i will say for tauros he is in the group in the adventuring party he definitely took the role of advisor 
He may not be smart, but he is wise. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. He's been down that road, right? Been at that road at the age of 26, left medical school because uh, he yeah. is a doctor. <laughs> well, yeah. No, there's th these these guys are very similar in the sense that their school, which is the Cathedral of the Watchful Eye, um, is a place where all of these seers go to get trained in how to use their ability. And, and they all see in different ways, right? So some see by using a mirror, others by reading bones or tossing dice or reading cards or the stars, right? And in Damus's case, he he sees things through this honoramancy, this, this you know, visions that come to him that are imparted by his God in his dreams. And Great Taurus is one that used a mirror, which comes into play in, in, in the books as well as sort of a, sort of a magical connection uh, that, uh, again, no spoiler alerts here. But right. It's, it's a fun little magic device that I've been able to use to, you know, to get this old blind seer around. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, in that, in that case, it's, it sounds to me like we're, we're walking down similar paths. Right. But uh, Toros definitely chose the way of the hero. At least he hopes he has. <laughs> Yeah, not the case for Great Taurus. <laughs> uh, He's that, the baddie. He's the big bag evil guy. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. But in in asking that, what would you say is your favorite thing about writing a villain? So, I, you know, most books I read start out with the protagonist. You know, the heroes. Uh, I'm the opposite way. Each of my books start out with the villain. And uh, I think it's because I got asked this question on a, on a different interview, not the same question, but they asked if I were to be a hero or a villain in one of my own books, which would I be? And I'm 100% the villain. <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> I see through their eyes better. I see their motivations. I see their path to redemption. You know, I see sort of like the, to use a D&D &D term, you know, the chaotic neutral. Mm -hmm. uh in 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 a lot of these guys and there's something that you know makes them stand out and they, maybe they weren't uh always bad like in great taurus's case he was a keeper he was a he was a very good man you know and trying to lead the realm in the right directions and then fumbled in his own affairs with his ancient and caused this curse to befall him you know and i always like cheering for redemption when it comes for um you know uh, what i would describe as sort of villains so whether it's like darth vader in, in star wars uh, right. who comes around in the end you know uh or other others that are like that they have a shot at coming back and then it's does the author allow them to come back and in great taurus's case you have to read on you won't you won't get that answer by the end of book one uh but you know my hope is that you learn more and more about the decisions he made and why he made them and the, that sometimes our villains are not always what we think that they are you know there's right. an old saying that not all demons know they're demons right and in his case um he what he wasn't born to be evil you know this isn't something that's just inherently bad he just made a couple of really bad life choices and as you learn later in the series the human element comes into play and, and you you figure out why he did it and you you, you can sympathize with them uh, in many respects. And, uh, you know, if you were to ask yourself the same thing, if you had the power of all this knowledge that was in this artifact, this Tome of Enlightenment, would you have done the same thing? Um, 
and uh you know i think that's that's a question that'll be answered later on in the series but right uh, yeah that's why i i i like writing villains a, a lot more than i like writing uh uh the heroes i just I, maybe identify with them better yeah um one thing i heard i mean have heard a couple times is that the villain thinks they are the hero of their own story and if you ask me that is a hundred percent accurate for a good villain that's 100 percent true they have to believe that what they're doing was right for them and for other people and Grey Taurus is no exception to that. Um, and I think that makes for the better villain, right? It's mm -hmm. just not the random serial killer that you can't predict what's going to happen or why they're doing the things they're doing, or like a, a Leatherface or Michael Myers that has, that they're just so despotically evil and there's some sort of disconnect there. You can never identify with them. You just know that they're just bad. Right. And but I think the best villains, the ones are the cool, the calculated villains are in it for a reason. Like you said, they they believe that they're the heroes of their own story, even though uh, they may learn later on that they're not. Uh, uh, and, you know, you know, I think the great Taurus is no exception to that rule. So in Rala, like what separates dark fantasy from fantasy fantasy? Sure. So I would say that classical fantasy and sword and sorcery and epic fantasy all have sort of a Middle Earth kind of feel to them, right? And maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but if you're a fan of, of Lord of the Rings and you've read that, uh, you see that you know many things that are that are in there have a tendency to be, you know, goodly, you know, and it's it's more of you know the traditional fantasy that one would read. And I think a lot of that, even in contemporary fantasy, you can find in things like the Wheel of Time, or yeah. uh, you can find in, in, in things like even Dungeons and Dragons, like we've been talking about. Uh, dark fantasy, you know, takes you to a place where you're, you're actually seeing something through the eyes of the villain. Uh, and I think that I make my villains, maybe it's just my love of all things gothic, um, and my, you know, my obsession with vampires, even though there are no vampires in my novels. Um, it's the obsession with like necromancy or it's the obsession with things that are dark and that when you're reading them you might you might think by the looking at the cover of the book that wow this is going to be very Tolkien-esque um, or you know a Margaret Weiss or R.A. Salvatore uh, when you're reading things that are related to Dungeons and Dragons or, or other you know what I would deem as classical fantasy kind of writing and then you pick up my book and you'll find things in there that are darker right you know, there's things in there that may even be seen as you know demonic in some instances based on the use of religion in a good way you know what i mean i think that you know it's you know i've created a pantheon of gods um in the ancients that are all over the place and people can worship the god of death and that doesn't make them evil uh, you know, it's just something that they all pray to when someone dies and it's a it's this God exists and you must venerate them or at least be aware of them uh, and pray to them in the same way that you would in Greek and Roman mythology. You would pray for victories on the field of battle by slaughtering oxen, um, you know, and that's not good or evil. It's just something that you did or you would punish your your. Um, uh your, your enemies uh, you know after you know the winning battles and stuff like that and so i, I try to make it realistic 
in that respect. And I, and I think that in doing so and in building some divinity uh, around it, as well as, you know, I think the kind of creatures that I've created, um, like the antlered man who is sort of the servant for Grey Taurus, the mad, you know, you know, he's he's a result of like necromancy, you know, and and things like that. So you see a darker side of a fantasy you might not see necessarily, um, you know, in traditional fantasy. Right. And what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. One thing, like my favorite types of villains personally are the villains where you see them do despicable things. And you're like, oh, if I had this power, I wouldn't do that. But then you wonder, am I lying to myself? Yeah, and, and I think that's true of all good villains, right? I mean, there mm -hmm. are, like, like I mentioned before, there are those villains that can't control themselves from being villains, right? So, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, there's no yeah. one that will ever identify with Jeffrey Dahmer. Or Never. In the movies, Michael Myers or 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 you know like jason and things like that and, and even though even jason or freddy krueger have a backstory to them mm -hmm. that they were at one time innocent you know and things happen now freddy krueger a little <laughs> bit of a child molester uh, yeah yeah i, I mean he kind of had that comment <clears throat> yeah he had a, he has a comment but jason you know is, is a kid with special needs that drowns yeah. in a pool and his mother comes to take revenge and then it gets out of control right uh michael myers you never really know why he went off the rails i mean it was just something that was a mental thing and you know if you listen to dr loomis he's just the most evil thing ever he's just born evil you know and i think those are the kind of things uh that we need to look at when we're writing our villains to you know, ensure that they're doing things and they not all they're, they're not all bad and i think you'll find that in the way great taurus treats people that you know surround him in some cases he's despotic and in other cases he's respectful uh and and i and i think that that's that's a it's more a realistic way uh of writing villains and i also think it's it's something that makes the villain fun it's like they can be unpredictable but in the end, they, they, there's something else floating out there that's motivating them that, or something that created their condition that they need to find a way out of. Yeah, and one, my mind when I talk about sympathetic villains, quote unquote, my mind always jumps to Frankenstein because Frankenstein's monster, you could see, yeah, he's a bit of the villain, but also so is Victor Frankenstein. He, he's a terrible person. Yeah, and and that's a that's a real prime example of one where, you know, there's by no fault of his own did Frankenstein become this golem of, of uh, uh, of the Doctor and uh, or you know in you know the classic werewolf you know Tolbert gets bitten uh, by a, a werewolf it's not his fault uh, and then he becomes it and how does he how does he deal with this curse that's befallen on him and even. Going and taking a look at the the, the classic Dracula, um, those things are are you know creatures that again here's a man who's lived 600 years and is now trying to find a path to his own redemption and has learned has learned over that time that you know by you know, when he falls in love with a woman he thinks is the reincarnation of his previous wife how does that how does that bring him back around uh, and you know and remind him that he one time was was alive. Um, and sometimes there's, like I said before, there's some religious overtones there or life lessons that, that one can find in that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, but I, I think your Frankenstein example is, you know, tap dead center. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And another one I like to point to, maybe it's because I'm a fan of the classics, but uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because Dr. Jekyll, he's a good man. No one doubts that. Yeah, it's and just, it was a mistake in his, yeah. you know, his his potion making, and it was a, it was a mistake in his his desire to learn more. And and I think at the time that that was done, there was an adolescence uh, that maybe even some would argue we're still as a society staggering through, where people were venturing away from, you know, old age. Uh, I'm sorry about the dogs in the background. Oh, that's uh, fine. Yeah, they like just dogs. pop up every now and then. Yeah, um, but fine. you know, they 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 venture away from. It, like this medieval way of handling things and now it's this age of science you know and you find that to some degree in in, in dracula where they try to explain this this blood disease or in the case of De jekyll and hyde it's you know an alchemist who's pushing the limits uh and if we rewind the clock those things are not much different than even using your frankenstein example before you know again it's it's the idea of finding this, this pathway to um you know uh you know eternity or or some sort of a never-ending life based on science as your savior as opposed to prayer or or other kind of of, of things and so you'll you'll see there was a time where that stuff was written and i think you've, you've seen a lot of them marie curie was you know uh you know uh you know an example of that i mean it was her study of, of uh you know x-rays that actually killed her uh, yeah. so it's not unlike um, you know, what you find with, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll, uh, who also is a victim of his own science. And it's a, it's a, it's a telltale warning sign telling people that not always is science good. Sometimes science is bad, or you're going to stagger through this adolescence. And I, I, I think you see that in even some of the modern day sci-fi stuff with cloning and the opportunity to, um, you know, for, you know, some sort of a, you know, cyber cyborg system that'll extend your life or, or make it better for you. You know, and I think we're seeing a lot of that play out with the first generation runs through augmented and virtual reality. So yeah. I think all that stuff is is really cool, but you know, you're always gonna suffer the curses of the extreme, right? Like Dr. Mm -hmm. Jekyll does. Yeah. So you were talking about the all of the ancients. Could you tell me more about those who reside in it? Yeah, so the the Hall of the Ancients were is my adaptation for the pantheon of gods within the realm of Warminster, and the hall is very similar to like I mentioned earlier, like a uh, you know a place in the heavens where the gods had once rested uh, terrestrially in Warminster, and they all left, and when they left, pieces of them stayed, but for the most part they became part of the you know sort of like the the heavens they they, they raised away and and people that still live in the realm look up at the night sky and see what they call the hall of the ancients and how it you know it kind of fades away into day and then you see them at night again so it's very similar to um you know to that in that respect and the gods have chosen to leave save for one god uh there's a god named trillius that stays uh and he exists on an island uh, where you can go and try to test him. And he's the god of sports and tests. And if you are able to beat him at one of his tests, you're granted a wish. Uh, and, but very few, if any, uh, do that. Uh, and so it's a, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, life or death situations. And he stayed behind for some reason. Uh, ultimately, that plays out in book three, by the way. Uh, but these, these ancients all have a different role. And in the case of Damus and Great Taurus is god. 
there, uh, you know, it is the god of knowledge. It's sexless. It's a the name of the god is Arud, and it's because knowledge doesn't have a sex, and it's it's the prayer for knowledge. And so Arud grants them foresight uh, to see things that are coming in the future, and trains them uh, in medicine, and, and trains them uh, in the art of politics, and sends his followers or its followers. Uh, their followers, I guess is the right way to call it, into the communities to help the queens and the kings and the emperors of the realm make decisions. When things come, they're able to read these signs uh, because their ancients allowed them to do that. Uh, and what I've tried to do is find ancients that cover a lot of the same things that you find in, in Norse mythos or Greek mythos or you know Mesopotamian mythos. So there's a god of fortune. Uh, named Nothos, and you pray to him when you're gambling or you're taking a risk. Uh, there's a god of war named Kos um, that's there. That's kind of the same thing as Ares in that respect. It has, except it has much more of a sort of a Nordic or Scandinavian feel to it. So it's and so depending on where you're going in the realm, there are pockets of people that venerate different ancients for different reasons. Sometimes they're cultural. Other times they're worshiping the entire pantheon, or they don't even share. Uh, you know, some some of the same ancients because of distance um, that happens. And so I, I patterned it after, you know, these, you know, sort of old time pantheon of gods, depending on what culture they were, and adapted it to fit the realm of Warminster. Hmm. And I realized we're talking about the world and the villains and what inspired some things. We haven't talked about the protagonist. So, <laughs> so Damus Alaric is is the, the one of the main characters. There's actually three main characters, and he is he is one of them. And for the sake of our conversation today, he's the one that is a rival to Grey Taurus the Mad. Right? He is a, a young noble, uh, and when he was born, he was born blind, uh, and his family searched far and wide for some sort of mage or wizard or, or you know shaman that could bring him sight as he was their only child but they failed and on his birthday of his first year um some sort of, of, of mage or sorcerer appeared in his bedroom and touched his eyes and gave him sight and then disappeared um and so he sees with you know as he now starts to see physically as he gets older he realizes that it wasn't just sight that he was given he also has this power of the sight uh which is a, a power that's reserved for those that uh, Arud has blessed with their ability to, to see the future uh and damis is is one that does that and he somehow cosmically linked with great taurus and it's with great taurus's curse and damis's fortune uh that kind of come together uh, and in, in the hopes that, you know, that Damis can help save the realm from the return of the fallen keeper, this great Taurus, the mad. And so Damis is, is young. He's, you know, he's what I would describe as late high school age or early college age. He's getting out of his first years as a low keeper within the, in the cathedral of the watchful eye, uh, and has yet to, to leave or even master his own power. Uh, and now he has to do this on the run. He has to do it because he's being hunted uh, by um, the great Taurus. He doesn't know who the man is. He doesn't know why he's after him. Uh, and he's trying to learn to use his powers to figure that out. And then he stumbles upon some other supporting cast uh, that's going to help him in his, his uh, uh, my adaptation of my uh, Dungeons and Dragons adventures. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us any more about the supporting cast? Or is that more of a secret? 
No, no, no. In fact, uh, you know, it's funny. I've gotten a lot of compliments at conventions I've been to or people that have written to me uh, to chat about the, the books, wanting to know more about some of the supporting cast. They, they've got their favorites. There's a uh, there's what I would describe in, in Dungeons and Dragons terms. It's sort of a hobbit or a halfling. Uh, I call them spring heels and they are half the size of a human. Uh, but they're like barbarians, right? They're like a halfling on steroids, right? <laughs> and uh, Blue Blue Connie uh, is this, you know, raging berserker, barbarian spring heel uh, that shows up on and he rides a war dog, and he's he's called Blue Connie because his kind have uh, facial tattoos. In his case, it's just a big blue mask that he got painted on his face or the car, sort of making him look like a raccoon, except blue. Uh, and you know there are scenes in the book where obviously he's defending Damus and doing some things, but you know it's in my head seeing you know this like Conan the Barbarian except mini me version of him, and the the name Springheel comes from their uncanny ability to spring forward. I used a you know sort of like a 18th 19th century you know urban legend of a oh yeah Springheel Jack. You got it. You knew where it was going. You're the first yeah, person exactly. to know that. So for Springheel Jack. Uh, would escape the police by jumping over a wall or jumping to the top of a building. And spring heels have that ability and then no one expects that, but that's where they get their name. And, you know, and so he can jump 20 feet forward and 10 feet in the air and he uses that in combat. Um, and I've had people tell me, uh, no matter what happens, they want me to write like the origin story behind Blue Connie or, um, you know, there's a, there's a woman named Fox Dalden who, is um, uh, this sort of redheadish rogue. And she was in the same city that Damus was in, but her family was found guilty of importing this very dangerous venom known as the, or uh, poison known as the venom of the abyss. And as a result, she was saved by Damus's uncle at a very young age, because she had nothing to do with it. But because of the, the, the severity of this, the, the family was gonna be executed. And she's the only Dalton to survive. And she's been on the run with a with a group of the these sort of you know kind of you know uh, friendly rogues including blue connie and, and her old captain of the guard this guy named arjun easy kyle uh and they end up helping damus to you know they save damus uh in part uh in this and they, they go a, a, along to help him uh you know fight the fight the good fight you know and and i think that you know i every you know the people i've talked to really like them and on the other side you know, I have, have had three or four people tell me that one of the other villains, which is sort of a, it's a, it's a creature called a bone elf, uh, which is Ooh. sort of like a, you know, a bad assassin uh, named Incanus Druwaith. And Incanus, uh, people see him as sort of my, I've, I've been told independent people that he reminds them of Boba Fett. And oh, you know, like that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. And it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't write him that way. I wrote him in a way where he's obsessively tracking, you know, the, you know, one of the elves in the book and trying to get to her, but he's part of this greater plot that's unfolding behind this was almost a political plot. He's blind to the politics of it and doesn't really care. He's just solely trying to kill these elves that are part of it. And man, again, most people in book one aren't going to know why. Uh, but again, I'm, I've been getting a lot of calls for his origin story and to find out a little bit more of him. So I'm making him a more prominent figure, actually even a point of view figure in, in, in the coming books. Nice. Yeah. For one, I still can't believe I'm the first one to get Spring Hill Jack. I'm honestly Bingo. surprised about that. First one, my friend. First one. 
So do I get a special prize or? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say you got to send me. I'll send you uh, some swag and I'll sign a book and get it over to you. Okay, cool. I'll email you some information for that. That, that. that would be great. No, no, I, I do have to say that no one's gotten this either. Damus, his name comes from Nostradamus. I lost the Nostradamus. Oh, Nostradamus. Yeah. Because he can see into the future. The future. So I just saw, I, I just took the Damus and made it Damus. I put an A and an E together and made it Damus. So it was a little bit of a hard A in there, but nice. you know, it was from that. And and no one, I tell people that they, they're like, oh yeah, I get that. But up until that point, no one's ever pointed that out to me saying, well, how did you pick that name? You know, but huh. you've got the Spring Hill Jack thing. And, and and that's, I didn't think it was that obscure either. It's a, yeah. it's a really cool urban legend. It and, is. You know, from the time of Jack the Ripper. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's, you know, pretty cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you got it. You're you're the first to win the prize. You get the, the gold star for the day. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but with the Nostradamus, actually in the campaign IDM for, I have this like Nostradamus figure. Well, the party doesn't know it's like a Nostradamus figure yet. Right. But he wants to cause the apocalypse to prove that he was right. <laughs> it is honestly out of petty for people like, oh, it'll never happen. He's like, okay, I'll make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool, that is a cool backstory for the right kind of villain. Where it's not even a villain, it's just someone who's so egotistical or narcissistic, yeah. right? He is. You know, and it's like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this to show you I was right. <laughs> yeah, it, like, he has gotten to the level of petty where he has stopped planets. Yeah. So they would be aligned perfectly, as he said. <laughs> yeah. See, well, he predicted it was going to happen. So yeah, exactly. Predicted, yeah. <laughs> big air quotes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's called what is a there's a term for that. I think it's self fulfilling uh, prophecy. Self fulfilling prophecy is right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, ending it on a nice bit of a comedic note. Uh, thank you for coming out. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. I'd love to do this when book two comes out in August and. Hey, uh, in the interim, you know, anybody can find me at uh, www.jvhillier.com. And uh, my books, audio books are all available kind of ubiquitously. You can find them on, uh, you know, places like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, or Scribd or Kobo Rakuten or Apple Books. You'll be able to find them anywhere you go. Awesome. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you for listening to the Geekening Podcast. I have been Will. Have a good morning, afternoon, night evening whatever time it is i hope it's good for you